is considered among theologians to be the foremost Old Testament prophet, principally because he reveals to us, particularly towards the end of Isaiah, so much uh, about Jesus Christ, who he was, who he is, um, information regarding his crucifixion. There's just not another prophet like Isaiah. And he prophesied over a time nearly 50 years. So uh, if it sounds like sometimes he's repetitious, you might remember that maybe uh, it's been a, a year since he prophesied and he, the Lord may have laid upon him um, something that he said before. So knowing that, it is incumbent upon us if we study Isaiah to try to understand uh, the relevance of passages that deal with uh, various subjects associated with God's dealing with his people. Now, what we have primarily in all of the, what we call the Old Testament, what we have is God revealing himself uh, continually and hopefully when we come away from the Old Testament, we will know that God has given us there many testimonies to what he was going to do many hundreds of years after these prophets penned their words. And much of it will have great effect upon us much of it will uh, be, it is very needful for those who are members of Christ's body, the church, that we will not be ignorant of our Lord's dealing in these last days. We can be assured by the testimony of the Holy Ghost by direct knowledge of the Lord who lives in us and is our life. And according to the various promises that are manifold, uh, that the words we read are reliable. It pains me to tell you that roughly midway through the 19th century, that would be from 1850, about the time of the Civil War, 1850 forwards sprang up a number of well-educated, highly credentialed theologians who tried to turn the truth of, of all the scripture, tried to turn it upside down. And they convinced millions that the scriptures are simply the thoughts and imaginations of human beings 
but not the inspired word of God. And once, of course, that is done, then for those who believe such a thing, the Bible at best could only be a book of moral precepts and similar to other writings of men over the ages, such as Aristotle and Plato and men who were intellectuals and we still have their writings. But the Bible's entirely something different. Uh, the more you study it, the more you see the unity of a sovereign God working over a period of, in my opinion, 6,000 years in order to give us the opportunity to and, and for us, by the way, who live at the end of this age, we have all of the scriptures. Mm -hmm. We have opportunity like has never been before mm -hmm. to by the Holy Ghost and the word of God to see the person to consider him and to find him desirable, whereby we would seek to in, be further enlightened and that we would come to know the deep things of God and that we would think God's thoughts after him and that the life of God would not be simply a matter of a volume of teaching, but the life of God, the mind of Christ is imprinted in our spirit whereby the Lord would call that which he has done in us. He calls it life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For it is not simply uh, a academic exercise. Mm -hmm. Jesus Christ came that we might move out of death and come into the light, which is the light of his life. And that we would be so moved by the great privilege and the, the marvelous sovereign work of God in doing that in our, in our being would cause us to become very strange people in this world would cause us no longer to think and act like most human beings think and act and to understand that we do not rely upon our own intellectual capacity, but rely, we rely upon the revelation of Almighty God, who has directed his love towards us. Mm -hmm. And we are the recipients of that. Yeah. Even according to 2 Peter chapter 1, whereby we have come uh, to have all things. There's nothing God's leaving out we are able to have all things pertaining to life and godliness 
And that is not by knowledge, that is by indwelling. The life we carry is the life we are called to pay attention to. And it is contrary to all that the natural man would fathom and in according to the fact that we have been given all things pertaining to life and godliness, that we will walk as strangers and pilgrims in this world, knowing that the joy that God has set before us is not to be compared with either difficulties or distractions in this world. More than that, Peter goes on to say that we have received all things that pertain to godliness. I hope all of us understand that when speaking of the church, we are talking about new creatures that God breathed in his very life and lifted us up even as his son has been lifted up. And that we will live with him and we will reign with him in the earth and in the universe, time without end. And so this is the God, our Father God, who is revealed to us in this book. If we would turn to Revelation 19, and I don't want you to turn to that. And I would say to you that in its broadest uh, truth, the old, what we call the old and the New Testament is about Christ. Now, it takes some study to begin to see that. Sometimes it's very overt, and sometimes it's through shadows and types. You see all of the sacrifices, for example, that Israel practiced in all their holy days and their feast days, and all of the ordinances that Moses put together based upon the 12, uh, the, the 12 statements of law, that all of those, as we look at them, are depicting some quality, some element of the nature and character of Jesus Christ. Now, here in Isaiah, 42, uh, that is easy to be seen, for it talks about Christ. And much of the rest of Isaiah is going to tell us things about Christ that we could come to conclusions about as we, as we read the New Testament. But the things that are said about him are thousands of years old, and they are as powerful and as spirit-led as anything we can find in what we call the New Testament. 
this book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And our Father God is ministering to us whereby we should pay attention even as the cloud descended over three of Christ's disciples, he and Elijah and Moses, and the cloud came down over them on the Mount of Transfiguration. And here's what God spoke out of the cloud. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he said this, hear ye him. Just another word, another saying that amplifies the hundreds of times particularly in the Old Testament, we hear uh, we hear the word of the prophet saying, the Lord, uh, thus saith the Lord, that's what I wanted to reach in and grab. When we read, thus saith the Lord, that means he's giving us some direction that is not optional. And when Christ spoke in such a way, he said things like this, verily, verily, I say unto you, the word verily, verily, of course, meaning truly, truly, this, that I'm going to speak next will uh, tear down your foolish imaginations regarding what truth is. Hear me, this is the truth. For Christ is the truth. And the truth in every element of what it is the truth exists only in God. Whatever we come to know is true. It is in God. And we may eventually come to realize that it is in him we move and we have our being. And so we start with chapter 42. And it starts out in verse 1 saying, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. Now, I think the judgment he's referring to there is a, uh, a judgment of punishment. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, he will judge the Gentiles in other ways. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and the smoking flax shall he not quench. He shall bring forth judgment in truth. He shall not fail nor be discouraged till he have set judgment in the earth and the coasts or the isles 
shall wait for his law. Thus saith God the Lord, he that created the heavens and stretched them out, he that spread forth the earth and that which cometh out of it, he that giveth breath unto the people upon it and spirit to them that walk therein. I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and I will hold thy hand, and I will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles to open blind eyes and to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. Now I have told you in the past that as I consider God's dealing with the entire nation, the collective form of the nation, that as God has dealt with them, we should understand that he is giving us uh, direction and encouragement and information as how he deals also with individuals. I just, you know, he often talks about Israel as, as a person. He talks about Israel as out of Isaac, and he talks about Israel, and more often, as the entire seed of Jacob. And he deals with that nation, not primarily with the individuals in it, but he deals with it as a collective body because his intention for that nation was not simply that individuals within the nation would bring the light of the Almighty God to be seen in the world, not the individuals, but the nation itself. God's idea of a powerful testimony to the world was through a favored nation. And it's interesting to me that they failed miserably a multiplicity of times. The history of Israel, particularly from the time of Moses, so about 1500 BC, when God made a covenant with them, the covenant basically, basically said, I'm going to give you the truth of my law and you are going to covenant with me that you will keep it. And my covenant with you is that I will give you this law. And if you keep it, I will bless you. That was the agreement that overshadowed all of God's dealings with Israel up even through the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, Israel, during that time of testing, failed in every way imaginable. 
they failed to grasp the true value of law. They failed to grasp the truth that without faith, it is not possible to please God and their own prophets and kings, mainly King David in the Psalms, let us know that what God is looking for among the Israelites was that they become a nation that uh, was not proud, but they were a dependent nation, believing that as they would cling to their God and honor him and love him, that they would have every good blessing in the earth. The idea for them in regard to the covenant was not uh, really so associated with eternal life as individuals. It was associated with whether or not God would have pleasure in that nation. And you and I should remember that uh, God has created all things for his pleasure. And if that sounds selfish, it's because you and I may look at God as if he were a man. He is not a man. He has existed forever. He made all that is made. He is the only source of right and righteousness in the universe. And when he calls upon men to worship him and to understand that their purpose is to please him, then we begin to understand rightly why we are on this earth. Now, I've got some more things to say, but I'm just going to ask Mark at this time if he would uh, bring us. I heard you practicing there, Mark. Uh, sound like, um, um, what's his name? Guy Penrod? Yeah, sound like Guy Penrod. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that one, though. I like that. But I'm going to do a guy pin around. Okay. Day by day. With each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here, trusting in my Father's wise bestowment. I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure. Given to each day what he deems best, lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Fain would bear and cheer me 
Savior's name, his counselor and power, the protection of his child and treasure is the charge that on himself he laid. As thy days, thy strength shall be in measure. This a pledge to me he Help me then, every tribulation, so to trust. Thy promises, O oh Lord, that I lose, I face sweet consolation offered me within thy holy word. Help me, Lord, when toil and trouble meeting, dare to take as from a father's hand. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. One by one, the days, the moments fleeting, till I reach the promised land. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Alice uh, helped me remember that I was telling you about the fact that all of the scripture, one way or another, is about Jesus Christ. Uh, and it, you may have to kind of take things as a whole or do some extra study, but somewhere along the line, you're going to find out that what is written or what is a shadow or a type is all about Jesus Christ. But I didn't quote the Revelation verse for you. And the Revelation verse, Revelation 19, says this. The spirit of prophecy. So this is a definition. Uh, this is what I call definitive scripture. Because it is going to define what the spirit of prophecy is. I'm going. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now that's right straight out of Revelation, word for word. And we need to understand that God has assigned for man's substitute sacrifice, that is, has assigned Christ as the Son of God to accomplish that which he's called upon us to believe. The unseen one who is working there is the Holy Ghost. Now, thinking about Israel, and there are many failures. I mean, they disbelieved God. They ended up taking God simply uh, as a matter of religion. I mean, all their neighbors in the world around them had their gods, and they had, and Israel had their God, the one God. And Israel even forsook the worship of 
one God and mimicked the, uh, the work of their neighbors in worshiping gods of their own imaginations and idols that were made with their own hands and finding some fleshly satisfaction in that kind of worship. Now, often that worship was in the eyes of anyone who has the shred of righteousness, their worship was a, an abomination. Their worship, uh, worship involved them cutting themselves with knives. Their worship involved temple prostitutes. Their worship involved the sacrifice of little children. Uh, their work uh, involved looking to their idols only that they might have worldly satisfaction. And we look at it as such foolishness, but it's pretty obvious as a matter of fact, as I take stock of the foolishness that is going on in the world right now, for example, regarding transgender re-identification or the foolishness involving uh, for this country, the abortion of 60 million children. And that's just here. Uh, the foolishness that, uh, that just being born with a certain skin co color makes us either bigots or those who are being oppressed. And it's going on and on to the point that, for example, uh, in China, there is assigned to every individual a social credit score. And I tell you, as it is going forward, this is soon to come to the United States. And if your social credit score is not up to par, you will suffer certain penalties. Uh, some could be very serious. Uh, I think it is absolutely ridiculous that what five years ago was free speech, I can no longer say. Uh, and this is being, I just don't see the backlash against this that one would have thought a freedom-loving people would have uh, released against this darkness. And so it is clear, in my opinion, that the spirit of Antichrist, as John told us in 1 John, is working in the world, and the spirit of Antichrist is bringing men to foolish conclusions that rational men would look at and say, have you not said it? This is crazy. The world has gone crazy. Well, do I fear? No, we do not fear because we know that all things work together for good for those that love the Lord. And we know that there is a time of tribulation coming and we believe strongly that the believing church, the true church will be taken out of this world before that occurs. 
nevertheless, uh, the judgment of God in the earth is going to be, and I just don't think any of us can grasp how horrendous is the judgments that are coming, particularly at the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. And Christ said it right in the sermon, the Olivet Discourse, that except the Lord cut that day short, no flesh would remain alive. And you know, if if there's some catastrophe in the world today where 50 people were killed in a bus that ran over a cliff, we would we would consider that to be, uh, you know, pretty uh, newsworthy. And, uh, you know, we, most of us in the world will hear about it one way or the other. How are they going to report it when in a night, tens of millions will die? That in a day, millions will get up and they'll never lie down because they'll be taken out of this world. And that every kind of natural disaster, the, the leveling of mountains, the movement of the plates of the earth, the, the uh, volcanic disruptions, the, 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 the particles uh, of those eruptions covering the earth, the sun being blotted out, the oceans turned to blood, the bottomless pit opened and creatures will come out that have hair like women and teeth like lions. And they will have one purpose, but is to punish men in the earth, uh, whereby men will desire to die, but they will not. Now, I've just touched on a few things out of my memory as to what is coming in this world. Men, as those mountains are being moved, some men are going to go there where they're being moved and say, I'm waiting for that movement just to fall on me. But they yet will not turn to God because such, such is the heart of man. And I tell you, it is the heart of every man. For we are saved by grace because God has chosen us and he has elected us for salvation. And he has called us. And there is no man who will receive the truth of salvation through our Lord, except God reveal himself to that man and bring him by grace to have the capacity to turn away from his own self and to throw his life in the arms of God because mm -hmm. that's what salvation is. Yeah. So the interesting thing to me as I compare God's dealings with Israel which cover the whole of what we call the Old Testament mostly, when we compare the multiplicity of times that Israel forsook God, and I want you now to consider the rest of the nations in the earth at the same time when God was 
over and over and over that he was bringing chastisement on Israel, and then he would bring forgiveness. And they'd go on for a while and then they would fall away and God would chasten them. But then they would find forgiveness. And my question is, name for me one mighty world power like Babylon or Medo-Persia or Rome who were dealt with by God, whereby a multiplicity of times he judged them and then restored them. And I think you'll find that the answer is zero. And so what was it about that little nation Israel that kept bringing God back, chastening them, and then again bringing judgment against them for their sins, whereby they were referred to by God to be a rebellious and a stiff-necked people. Well, that's what we find. What was it about Israel? God took them on. And he owned them. Mm-hmm. whereas he owned no other nation in the earth. Yeah. They were his people. He called Israel collectively. He called them a son. We also know they were referred to as the wife of Jehovah. And it was not because Israel was better, even slightly better than the the wicked nations that often were used by God to chasten them. They weren't better, but God up front had chosen them. It wasn't about them. It was about God. And now you and I have to ask the question, what have we learned regarding our salvation as we look at how God dealt with that nation? And the answer is, God has chosen us as individuals. He has chosen us. He has endowed us by the joining with his spirit. He has made us into new creatures. He has proclaimed that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. And God's reputation is bound up part and parcel with your life. And I know, as I often say, I know whom I have believed in and am persuaded that he is able. Why do I know I have eternal life? Why do I know it's not something that will be lost to me, not because of me. It's because God decided. And God's reputation is very much associated 
with the victory that will come in mine and your life. That's right. Because he has chosen by his sovereign grace yeah. to take you on yeah. as a son. Yeah. And you cannot choose to change that relationship. Now, as I am reading about Christ, we should recognize in chapter 42 that he came in humility. He wasn't, you know, I mean, the disciples and anybody in Israel who got some idea about his power and who he was, what did they want? They wanted him to destroy the Roman Empire and to restore Israel according to the prophecies of the millennial kingdom that are to come. And that will come. But they could not understand, and it was a mystery, that before that would occur, God was going to call out of the Gentiles a people after his own name. Mm -hmm. Here I am. Mm -hmm. There you are. Because we believed. Mm -hmm. And in his first coming, he was not that mighty conqueror. He was not that one who would call 20 legions of angels to uh, fight against uh, Pilate's guards when Christ stood before him to be condemned to the cross. That wasn't him. It was him not to fight against those who stole him away out of the Mount of Olives at night. It was him to heal the servant of the high priest who, whose ear was cut off by Peter. That was Christ. That was his purpose in coming. When he comes the second time, the words we see in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, will not apply to him. For he will come in judgment. You want to see a picture of him? Read early on in Revelation. When we see him coming with his armies at the battle of Armageddon. And out of his mouth comes the word of destruction against the enemy. It will be called a sword and he will destroy them. And so for us, as I, I have looked at this chapter, uh, knowing that, that Christ is still in the business of receiving those Gentiles who will recognize who he actually is. The truth of verse 7, that he's coming, he's a light for the Gentiles, and he is to open the blind eyes to bring out the prisoners from the prison and them that sit in darkness out of the prison house. I would ask for me and for you the question, is there any bondage that is holding your life from being all that you could be to please the one who deserves all that you might give. 
if there is, consider that this is the day to be free. And when we are free, as I read verses 9 and 10, we see that those who are free sing his praises. And so I wrote in my Bible a big, bold letters when it said, sing unto the Lord a new song and his praise from the end of the earth. Ye that go down to the sea and all that is therein, the coasts or the isles and the inhabitants thereof, let the wilderness, I, I envision this in my mind, uh, that those, those uh, creations on this earth will have their part in glorifying the coming king. Mm -hmm. Let the wilderness and the cities thereof lift up their voice. The villages that Kadar doth inhabited, inhabit. Let the inhabitants of the rock sing. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory unto the Lord and declare his praise in the islands. If we think that is not possible, then I would, I would say to you what Christ said to some who asked him on that day when he rode into Jerusalem on the fall of an ass. And the religious people came to him and said, quiet these people, tell them to stop calling out Hosanna, the king. Stop them. What did Christ say? If they do not sing, then the very rocks will open up and do it. I believe that. I think that was something that should be taken seriously. There... God will be exalted. He will be exalted in his creation, and he will be exalted by those who by grace have been brought to see his mighty power and wonder in eternity. And one more thing. Looking now at verses 13 and following, again, we see a whole complement of eyes. I think maybe it's something like nine. Verse 13, chapter 42 of Isaiah, the Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. Hmm. That sounds a little different than a bruised reed, shall he not break. Mm -hmm. The Lord shall go forth as a mighty man. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. Hear, O Israel, your God is a jealous God. He shall stir up jealousy like a man of war. He shall cry, yea, roar. He shall prevail against his enemy. Somebody ought to write a pamphlet or a book. When God roars. Because he hasn't roared yet. But in tribulation, God will roar. He will bring the whole earth down in fear. And all of that which man over the centuries has 
brought to his own engrandizement, everyone will be laid low. There, there will be nothing for men to point at anymore when Christ returns and say, look what we have done. But there will be almighty God. There will be in the valley of Jehoshaphat, Christ addressing the millions who will be there pleading, pleading for his nation Israel. That means justifying what he is doing and will do. And letting those who have some heart for him move on into the millennial kingdom and the ones who won't into the lake of fire. I should say cast them into hell because the lake of fire will receive hell pretty soon. Mm -hmm. So the Lord said, now will I cry like a travailing woman. I will destroy and devour at once. I will make waste mountains and hills. I will dry up their herbs. I will make the rivers islands. I will dry up the pools. And I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. And I will lead them in paths that they have not known. I will make darkness light, uh, darkness to be light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. I can't help but think of what Paul said, for he will call light out of darkness and make those things that are not as though they were. And what we are going to see in the person that comes uh, who we will spend eternity with, glorifying his name, he will be glorified in all the earth and in all the universe. Mm -hmm. And who is on his side? Yeah. Yeah. I remember what Moses said to the people of Israel. After he had come down off of the mountain and he found that they had, they were committing harlotry they, were, they had made themselves a golden calf. They were uh, cavorting and uh, it being involved in immoral activities. They were partying, friends. Mm -hmm. Some people like to party. They were partying. And the Lord, or pardon me, and Moses stood on a high place above them, and he spoke the words, who is on the Lord's side? And some of them separated themselves, repented, and left the others to be swept away as the earth opened up its mouth and they were consumed into the bowels of the earth. This is our God. In judgment, he will be a consuming fire. And for those that he has owned and who have owned him, 
grace, grace will abound. Mm -hmm. But for those who will not recognize who he is, there will be harshness beyond imagination. So I'll just say to you in closing that chapter 42 ends up talking about the blindness of Israel and God gives the promise that he again will restore that nation. Mm -hmm. How do I know that that little sliver of land over there on the Mediterranean Sea with a sea at the top called Galilee and a sea at the bottom called the Red or the, the Salt Sea or the Dead Sea. That little nation, how do I know that they who really at this point, according to the scripture, are a stumbling stone and a rock of offense in the earth, how could that be? But that God is going to bring them into their fullness of fruition. That is the God that we trust in through Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We own him. He is yeah. ours. And we are his. Let us pray together. Father, as many times I've said, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that all these things were done in Israel as our examples. This is why we study the Old Testament, because it is filled with the revelation of yourself. We do not study it, dear Lord, so that we might consider the earthly blessings in eternity that are given to Israel to be ours. But blessings they are to an earthly people but we, Lord, are not an earthly people. We are the stuff to live in heaven. And so let it not be that when we, that when we arrive there, that it will seem like a strange place. For let us practice that which is characteristic of saints as we walk in this earth, giving glory to Christ, giving God his due reverence, and hoping to the end according to the sure promises that he has made to each of us. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.